Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Our guests today are from the Pediatric Cystic Fibrosis Center at Nationwide Children's in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Karen McCoy is director of the center, and Dr. Daniel Heinz is a fellow in pediatric pulmonary medicine. Today's discussion is a follow-up to the recent newsletter issue on trends in inhaled antibiotic therapy. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from GEC USA Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Gilead Sciences. Learning objectives for this audio program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to determine the timing and selection of inhaled antibiotics associated with the Pseudomonas eradication protocol, identify patients who need to initiate alternate monthly inhaled antibiotics, and to summarize the inhaled antibiotic needs for the teenage patient with cystic fibrosis. Dr. Daniel Hines reports that he has no relevant relationships with any commercial entity. Dr. Karen McCoy reports that she has received grants from Pharmaxis, Novartis, Alcresta, Vertex, Novalis, Gilead, and ProQR Therapeutics. The faculty also report that in today's program, they will discuss unapproved therapies currently under research, including aerosolized vancomycin, liposomal amikacin, cholestomethate, and levofloxacin. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. Dr. Hines, Dr. McCoy, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Your newsletter issue, doctors, presented important new findings about managing Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections with inhaled antibiotics. I'd like to focus today on how that information can improve patient care in the clinic. So start us off, if you would, Dr. Heinz, with a patient scenario. Okay. The first case is an eight-month-old infant who has typical CF and has been thriving and doing well clinically. He's on standard therapies, including a chest vest twice a day. He uses albuterol, pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, salt replacement, and his CF vitamins. At baseline, he usually has no cough. And during a routine clinic visit two weeks ago, a culture was performed and it was now growing pseudomonas. It's the first time that he's actually grown pseudomonas on his cultures. We called and talked to the parents and they say now he has a cough for like the last 10 days. We did do an infant PFT at six months of age, and it was showing that FEV 0.5 is 114% predicted. So this eight-month-old patient, would you start him on antibiotics immediately? You know, there's a couple of ways you could probably go with this case. The first one is he's a well child. FEV 0.5 is clearly 114%, which means that his lung functions are doing very well. And if the parents are not too worried about this, then I think the next step is really trying to get a second culture done to confirm the diagnosis of pseudomonas. You know, it's possibly this could be just a contaminant or he has a viral infection that's growing out, which is causing the cough. And so in those cases, you might want to just hold off on starting the antibiotics and then just doing the second culture. If the child's really ill, though, or the parents are very concerned regarding the result, then clearly you could start antibiotics. But I would probably get the second confirmatory culture prior to starting antibiotics. We're really trying to do a judicious use of these antibiotics that we have. 
second CF, we're really most concerned with side effects of medications. In this patient, we most likely would start like an aminoglycoside like tobramycin, which has side effects of nephrotoxicity. Now, the side effect profile is more cumulative. So after a decade of using a lot of these drugs, you're more likely to have issues with nephrotoxicity. And it's because of that, we just really want to wisely start antibiotics when we think it will benefit the patient the most. What about attempting pseudomonas eradication in this patient? Dr. McCoy, would you consider that? Well, certainly if we had achieved a second positive culture, then eradication would be the way to go. That would be accomplished generally by using some of our available antibiotics that are approved for this use. Uh, The eradication protocol, uh, would you briefly summarize that for us, please? Well, we would select either an inhaled tobramycin or astreonam and use that for 28 days. And along with that, because of the nature of pseudomonas resistance, we would employ an oral quinolone for about 14 days. Those two together at the same time and then with a little bit longer tail of two weeks on the inhaled component. Attempting eradication in an eight-month-old infant, are there particular issues that clinicians should be aware of? Well, certainly compliance or adherence issues are always a consideration in chronic disease. And whether we use the medications and we try to educate extremely well for the parents so that they understand the reason for using them and the reason for doing them exactly as described, or we employ some other things such as increased chest physiotherapy, it would always be important to realize that adherence plays an important role in this disease process. So despite potential adherence issues, you believe that eradication in this infant is important? I absolutely do. Eradication is always to be attempted because the colonization with pseudomonas, once it becomes chronic, leads to decreased lung function over time and an increased expectation of mortality sooner. That is fairly straightforward and has been demonstrated many times. Determining if pseudomonas eradication is successful, what's the process? We would always reculture after this treatment course, and if it regrew again, we failed eradication, or it might be that we've been very successful and it could be months to years before it regrows. Is there a preferred order of the interventions to maximize airway therapies? Dr. Heinz? Well, there is a preferred order that we try to go with, and usually we start off with the medications, and then we move to the vest, and then we'll finish up with like any antibiotics or steroids. The first medication we usually will use will be like albuterol, and that's a bronchodilator, so that helps open up those airways. In this patient, that's what they're already on. If in older patients, which we'll talk later, there's other things like hypertonic saline and pulmozyme as well. So the hypertonic saline is useful for replenishing the ASL level in the mucus layer of the airways. And so by making that bigger, the airway cilia are able to move better and the mucociliary elevator is able to help rid itself of the mucus. If we're on pulmozyme, that's what we usually use when the mucus is really thick and it helps thin that out because it's a mucolytic, so it breaks that down easier. Those albuterol, the hypertonic saline, and the pulmozyme, you can use either before or while you're doing the chest vest. The chest vest itself, we actually start that very early. 
it starts off as an infant, and there's two basic types of vest. One is from Hillrom vest, and the other is the Respiratec Encourage. We can start the Hillrom at a circumference of like 19 inches around the baby, and the Respiratec is actually 16 inches. Both of those have counters that you can actually download information if you need to see like how often they're being used. We typically don't do that very often, but that technology is there. And then lastly, when the vest is completely stopped, we've used up all our albuterol. Technically, the airways are about as clean as we're going to get. Then we want to try to use our antibiotics and steroids to help with any infections or to decrease the airway inflammation. Thank you, doctors. And we'll return with Drs. Daniel Heinz and Karen McCoy in just a moment. This is Bob Busker. I'm managing editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. Each issue reviews the current literature in areas of importance to pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, infectious disease specialists, pediatricians, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, nurses, and physical therapists. Bi-monthly podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts, providing case-based scenarios to help bring that new information into practice in the clinic. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. Continuing education credit for each issue in each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information on this educational activity, to subscribe to and receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. I'd also like to tell you about the CF Family Day Meeting Builder. This is a one-stop shop to help you create patient and caregiver educations and family day meetings. To find out more, please visit www.cffamilyday.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the Program. We've been talking about trends in inhaled antibiotic therapy with Dr. Karen McCoy and Dr. Daniel Heinz from the Pediatric Cystic Fibrosis Center at Nationwide Children's in Columbus, Ohio. Our focus is on how some of the information presented in our guest's newsletter issue can be applied in the clinic. Uh, So let's continue, if you would please, Dr. McCoy, with another patient scenario. Well, recently I saw an eight-year-old girl with typical CF and no baseline symptoms. Her nutrition was good, her FEV1 was near 100% predicted, and she's had the third consecutive culture positive for Pseudomonas aeruginosa. She'd previously only grown methicillin-sensitive staph. Her parents are very adherent with therapies, including best performance for 25 to 30 minutes twice a day, and her usual baseline therapies along with that, and they come to clinic on a regularly scheduled basis at least every 12 weeks. Well, thank you, Dr. McCoy. We've been talking about the need to attempt pseudomonas eradication as early as possible, and so let's assume we're going to try it on this patient. What are some of the factors that can affect the success of eradication? Dr. Hines? Pseudomonas is kind of a funny bacteria in the fact that, you know, when you initially get it, most of the time you don't have any biofilm. We call that non-mucoid, so it doesn't really cover itself in this, like, slimy layer. As you continually getting pseudomonas, it eventually adheres to your airways and then starts developing the slimy airways. 
And it's really a way for the bacteria to protect itself because the drugs or anything that we want to use on them have a very hard time penetrating into that slimy layer to get to the pseudomonas. And more pseudomonas will sort of aggregate and they create this like almost matrix, again, making it harder for any therapies to get down to it. So whenever you have a mucoid pseudomonas, your ability to affect change in the airways is greatly compromised. So the slime layer actually has a negative charge, and a lot of the medicines that we use also have a negative charge. And so since they're two negatively charged particles, they repel each other, and so they won't actually go in. What we really need is some sort of neutral antibiotic that is able to penetrate through that layer and then affect it. And those therapies are currently under study as we speak. Dr. McCoy, what can you do if eradication is just not possible? You simply are unable to achieve it. Well, in that case, we would explain the situation to the parents and offer them the opportunity to start alternating tobramycin or astreonam every other month as an inhaled medicine to see if we can control the pseudomonas even if we can't eradicate it. Other options are to temporarily increase chest physiotherapy, the best in this case. But while it's never a wrong idea to temporarily increase, non-adherence or non-compliance is associated with asking what the patient can't really do. And then later we could discuss whether we would add any of the Dornase or the hypertonic saline if we used our other approaches and then feel that the patient needs a little bit more to be able to help move the mucus out. Is there any particular age barrier to adding a Dornase or a hypertonic saline? Not really. I mean, we actually are able to go fairly low in age if we need to. But again, we don't want to overwhelm the patient and the family by adding several things that these are some of the most onerous therapies that we do, the inhaled ones, because they take time and attention and cleaning. And so we try not to overwhelm them with doing everything at once. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. Let's move on to another patient scenario. So uh, if you would, Dr. Heinz. So our last case is a 14-year-old girl who's chronically colonized with pseudomonas. She's a cross-country runner, and her BMI is currently in the 10th percentile. She claims to be adherent to her vest, but she doesn't do so well at the huff-cough clearance. Her lung functions have been ranging in the 68 to 75% predicted, and she has two feeds available for her weight, though she uses those inconsistently. Her CPT consists of nebulized tobramycin on on and off months, pulmazyme, hypertonic saline, and occasionally intermittent additional oral antibiotics. Despite saying that she's been doing well, she's required admissions for IV antibiotics four to five times in the past two years. And usually these admissions occur when she's on her off cycle from her nebulized tobramycin. Her FEV1 has also continued to decline despite our frequent admissions and for IV antibiotics. She's spending a lot of time in the hospital, and those exacerbations are happening during the month she's off the inhaled tobramycin. What are the available options to better treat this patient? At this point, we have like several options we could try. The first, maybe we want to start increasing her vest therapy. I would do that as a temporary basis, not as a permanent basis. Usually, the chest vest takes 20 minutes each time that we do this. And so you're doing it twice a day already, so you're taking 40 minutes You know, so you can imagine they're at least taking an hour to complete both of those. So by adding another therapy on top of it, it really is taking up a lot of their time. And that's pretty important for, especially for a teenager who's always on the run. 
And in that kind of case, you might want to try like a handheld CPT. And one of those would be like an acapella. It still takes 20 minutes to do, but you're able to like transport it and do it at other places where the vest itself is rather bulky and it can only really be done at home. The other consideration I would probably doing is working on with her huff cough. It's an important thing for the patient to be able to do because it really brings up the mucus and allows that to come out of the airways. And there's a special technique that they use. And it's really this almost it's like this wheezing and trying to get everything out like through a wheeze and that sets a vibration that comes out. The mucus will come out. So improving that would probably help her out a lot. You could also accept this as a new baseline, perhaps. I mean, if you've done a lot of things and, you know, you're not really budging the FEV1, it keeps staying at the predicted despite all of this. This just may be a new baseline, but we hate to actually admit to that. And then maybe the last thing that we would probably do is adding another inhaled antibiotic to her off month because her admissions seem to be in conjunction with these off months. And so by adding another antibiotic, you may help stem away from these admissions. I think, you know, adding as Trionam would be a good choice in here because now you would have tobramycin on one month and then you would alternate that with as Trionam. So she's constantly covered. The only problem with the as Trionam is that it's now three times a day instead of twice a day. And so even though it takes like two minutes to perform the estrionam, the cleaning involved with the equipment takes just as long as if you were just to do the regular chest vest therapy and everything else. So it adds another burden to the patient. This patient is a teenager, and we know that teenagers rarely do what they're supposed to do. Do you suspect she's not complying with her treatment regimen? With the four to five admissions, it really kind of screams out that this patient may be non-adherent and not doing her therapies. And so by adding more things on top of something that she may or may not be already doing, your success rate may not be as great. Dr. McCoy, Dr. Hines mentioned the concept of alternating or cycle therapy, tobramycin for a month, and then instead of a month off of therapy, using another inhaled agent like estrianam in that off month. What's your experience been with that? Well. We have seen mostly stabilization, both of FEV1 and need for hospitalization in that context when we get to this point with a patient where they're clearly flaring in the periods where they're not having antibiotic protection. Having said that, Dr. Heinz is completely right that the first things we go for are how are you doing your therapies? Are you doing your therapies? What's the level of adherence and nutrition that supports everything else that we do? We've talked about tobramycin, we've talked about estrianam. Are there other inhaled antibiotics we haven't discussed that might be considered in patients like this? Well, once we get to those antibiotics and they've both been used, we've exhausted our currently FDA-approved medications for in the United States. That doesn't mean that there aren't things that are done off-label, but they are off-label. Some people use amicacin either as an IV drug in the hospital or as an inhaled off-label drug. These are last-ditch efforts I'm talking about here. There are people who use colistomethate in an inhaled solution form that's made up from the IV preparation and has issues of stability. And if we use it IV, nephrotoxicity and neurological dysfunction. In Europe, they are using dry powder colistomethate, which does not have any of the problems associated with the solution form that is made up from IV preparation. 
So I will point out again that amikacin in that form, Clistin made up IV form, are not approved for use for this purpose, and the dry powder methate is not yet approved in the United States, though it may be in the future. Dr. Heinz, your comments on additional antibiotic agents, uh, available now or expected in the future? We were kind of limited in our classes of antibiotics that we're using for the inhaled antibiotics, and so we're really working on trying to bring about more classes into the picture. And one of these is inhaled levofloxacin. It's recently completed its phase three trials. The results aren't out yet, but the phase one and phase two were performed and it has been shown to be safe and it has actually improved lung function as well as decreasing pseudomonas density in the studies that they've already performed. And this would be a really important one if we could actually get this. Another tool in our arsenal that we could use against pseudomonas the other things that we have is a liposomal amicacin. And as I alluded to earlier, that with the biofilms that are produced, the problem is getting the antibiotics down past the slimy layer or the biofilm. And the liposomal actually is neutral. And so it is able to then go through that layer because it resembles like the surfactant. And as it goes through the layer, as it reaches the pseudomonas, the pseudomonas produces a type of protein and then that activates the antibiotics and then they can start attacking from where down below. Currently, that has just completed the phase two trial, and the results aren't out yet, but we're anxiously awaiting for those as well. Another possibility is colistamate. It's currently not approved in the United States, but it's widely used in Europe. And I think as we get further studies and or side effect profiles from this, there's a possibility that it may be approved here. But so far, there has been no talk on that. Another inhaled antibiotic, which is shifting away from the pseudomonas, is against the MRSA. And this would be really important. Currently, there's no consensus on how to eradicate MRSA infections in the airways, and we really just use IV antibiotics. In this case, they're coming out with an aerosolized vancomycin. And so far, it's been, I think, in the phase two studies, has been shown that it's really helping decrease the density of the MRSA in the sputum. And so it's a really interesting possibility. And I think lastly for the future, which is a really big topic as well, is, you know, we're using a lot of antibiotics and we really don't know what the effects on the lungs are. We used to think that the lungs were a sterile environment and that nothing drew in there. But, you know, recently within the last 10 years, we're starting to realize that there's a lot of things that are going on, such as bacteria, viruses and fungi that may actually be important for good health. Just like the skin has bacteria on it that enables us to stay healthy, we feel that that may be also true for the lungs itself. And so by giving the antibiotics and we start changing up the environment down in the lungs, it may be really playing a havoc on the CF patient. And so again, I think as we get more information on the microbiome and the effects on that, that would be an interesting thing to be watching out for. So these medications are currently under study, and so they're not approved in the U.S. So we don't really have access to the inhaled levofloxacin or the liposomal amicacin at this time, but that's what we're working towards on the studies. Dr. Hines, Dr. McCoy, I want to thank you both for today's discussion. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing what we've talked about in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the timing and selection of inhaled antibiotics associated with the pseudomonas eradication protocol. 
we don't necessarily need to start antibiotics right away. I think getting the confirmatory study is important. And then if that is actually positive, then to start realizing that other things can possibly cause cough in an infant, including viruses. So just because they've grown the pseudomonas for the first time, we really should get that second culture to confirm that it is in the airways and then start treatment with the eradication protocol. The protocol then would consist of 28 days of you know, nebulized antibiotic. Usually it's aminoglycoside such as tobramycin, and then 14 days of, and in the U.S. we use ciprofloxacin, and that would be an oral agent or IV, but usually it's oral. And I think, you know, again, just judicious use of antibiotics is important because all of these antibiotics have side effects. And as I stated earlier, tobramycin has nephrotoxicity side effects. Now, these side effects are cumulative, so the more often you use it, the more likely you're going to have some toxicity. And honestly, it's probably lessened in the inhaled antibiotics versus the oral slash IV antibiotics. But still, it can occur with any of those antibiotics. And our second learning objective, identifying patients who would benefit from the initiation of cycled inhaled antibiotics. Dr. McCoy? Well, as in our eight-year-old patient with several positives for pseudomonas, we may not be successful at eradication. And in that case, if we don't eradicate, it's time for us to consider cycling month-on-month-off inhaled antibiotics for that patient. Certainly, we could increase the chest physiotherapy, but I'd like to point out that that should be done judiciously because that's a very time-consuming addition and likely to lead to non-adherence, and then other therapies may be needed to support the patient as well. And finally, identifying the inhaled antibiotic needs for the teenage patient. Well, I think the older teenage patient, we're already on an on-off cycle with the inhaled tobramycin. So adding an estreonam or another inhaled antibiotic would probably benefit this patient a lot. And I think in the cases where their PFTs are declining and the are being admitted quite often for CF exacerbation, that it's important to start thinking about adding another antibiotic onto the regimen. But Again, this case kind of screams non-adherence, and so in this case, while you could add all those things, I would do that after only thinking about that for a while. You know, I might want to try to improve, like, her CPT technique, such as the huff cough that she wasn't doing well. I'd also want to try to improve upon nutrition, which is really huge and can affect lung function as well. And then before I start adding on like an additional antibiotic or an additional chest vest therapy, because every time we add on something, the compliance seems to go down or the adherence rate, I should really say, goes down on these patients. And so really trying to maximize their current therapies and then possibly adding on an inhaled antibiotic would be useful. From the Pediatric Cystic Fibrosis Center at Nationwide Children's in Columbus, Ohio, Dr. Karen McCoy, Dr. Daniel Hines, thank you both for being part of this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. You're welcome, and it has been my pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this a lot. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME-CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. 
This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive e-cystic fibrosis review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Kiesi USA Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.